over five years, it was the hottest show on the Home and Garden Network. And through it, Chip and Joanna Gaines have become household names, spawning a lucrative business enterprise under their Magnolia brand. The show is called Fixer Upper. Have you seen it? Uh, as one website described it each week, Chip and Joe would turn dilapidated but potential rich houses in and around Waco, Texas into real show places. They counseled clients who couldn't see a structure's beauty beyond its blemishes. And the clients bought the houses and then entrusted their precious property to the gains to perform their magic. And with Joe's design skills and Chip's construction savvy, they saved houses that looked hopeless, renovating the flawed and the faulty, revealing them at the end of each show as the homes they were always intended to be. From the kitchen to the living room to the bedrooms to the bathrooms, they engineered a complete makeover, resulting in an amazing transformation. My, love, my wife loved to watch Fixer Upper, and I kind of liked it too. Uh, I, I, and I couldn't help but think of Fixer Upper when I considered the transformational power of the gospel in a believer's life. You see, in our natural state, we are all in need of a complete makeover. In our hopeless condition, corrupted by the effects of sin, we must first entrust our lives into the loving hands of a gracious God. And then he goes to work according to the design of Jesus Christ and by the power of the Holy Spirit to transform our lives. He intends to bring out the beauty that he has always intended for us. We are the Lord's fixer-upper projects, meant to put on display to the world His goodness and grace. And in the gospel, you see, we're not just spectators in all of this. No, God calls us to participate in this process of divine transformation. It's what Paul has been calling us to in this passage in Romans chapter 12 that we've been expounding for the last several months. It begins in Romans chapter 12, verse 1. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. This is the first step, an act of faith, of trust, of worship. When we put our dilapidated lives on the altar of God as a living sacrifice, to him, for him to remake as he wills. Now that takes trust. And it's not just a, a one-time thing. No, we're living sacrifices, and we keep crawling off the altar, don't we? No, we've got to offer our bodies as a living sacrifice to God. Then Paul says, do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Now notice the contrast here. On the one hand, Paul speaks of the pattern of this world, and on the other, God's good, pleasing, and perfect will. Now the pattern of this world is all about possessions, power, prestige, pleasure. These are the world's roads to happiness, its, its measures of success. Now this world is all about looking after number one, putting your needs, your desires, your will first, and making sure that you get at least what you deserve. It's a dog-eat-dog -dog world. It's, a, it's about survival of the fittest. Don't let anyone take advantage of you. If you don't defend yourself, who will? 
It's a payback world where revenge is expected. A world where if you insult me, I will humiliate you. And if you shove me, I will punch you back. Personal autonomy, self-sufficiency, unlimited freedom. This is what this world offers. And that's the world that we live in. It's a world apart from God where man is the measure of all things and my own self-expression is the highest value. That's, that's our natural state. And in God's eyes, a life lived like that is a foolish life. It's like a, a run-down shack that will collapse with a great crash when the storm inevitably comes. But you know, this pattern of the world It is impressed upon us everywhere we look, in our entertainment, our media, our social networks, especially in the advertisements that we are bombarded with from every angle. You can't avoid the powerful influence of the world's vision of the good life. But here Paul points to an alternative, a contrasting pattern. It is the good, pleasing, and perfect will of God. It's a life lived in God's presence under His good rule. It's a life that expresses the character of God, His own image, supremely expressed in the person of His Son, Jesus Christ. It's a a life of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. In fact, it's a life that denies self. In fact, that self-centered self has to die to make room for a new self a new life. It's a life lived according to God's good design. It's a life of wisdom, life as we were meant to live it. And how does this transformation from the one to the other take place? What is the means of this fixer-upper process? Well, Paul says we are to be transformed by the renewing of our mind. Our whole way of thinking has to change. Our imaginations have to experience a makeover. All those inclinations of our hearts that are so natural to us as fallen creatures and which are reinforced by the influences of our culture, they have to be reprogrammed, as it were, and replaced by a new operating system. Or better, they need to be superseded by a new way of envisioning what a good life looks like. You see, we need a new way of thinking about our lives, a way of thinking that is shaped by the revelation of God in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Therefore, in view of God's mercy, Paul says, in view of the revelation of God's holy and gracious love, the love that is displayed in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. You see, this this gospel story is to be the paradigm for a new way of thinking about life, and through it we discover the transforming power to remake our lives. And so this divine fixer-upper, it's not a one-time event that can be captured in a 30-minute episode. No, it is a lifelong project that involves a continuous application of gospel truth. And that's what the Christian life is about. It's about the transformation of a damaged and dilapidated life into one that displays the beauty of Christ. And that transformation is not just of an individual life alone. No, it's about the transformation of a new community, a community of grace and truth, a church community that reflects the love of God and the gospel. We are together God's fixer-upper project. 
And he is continuing that good work among us right here this morning. Now we've been following Paul's description of sincere love in verses 9 to 21 in Romans chapter 12 in the last few months. And, and we've seen that this love is to be morally discerning, hating what is evil, clinging to what is good. This love must be filled with family affection toward one another. It must be quick to bestow honor on others rather than seeking it all the time for ourselves. This love must be passionate, never lacking in zeal, serving the Lord. It must be prayerfully patient in hope as we endure the inevitable hardships of this life. It must be practically generous as we share with the Lord's people who are in need. And it must be actively hospitable, welcoming the stranger. And last week we saw that it must be sympathetic, rejoicing with those who rejoice, mourning with those who mourn. Well, this morning we skip to verse 16, and we see that this love we are called to, this love that is to be transformative in our lives, this love must be humble-minded, humble-minded. Live in harmony with one another, Paul writes. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. Now, I say love must be humble-minded here. Because in each of the three sentences of this verse, Paul uses some form of the one Greek word for mind or thinking. Uh, The King James translates this verse as, be of the same mind, mind not high things. And the third sentence in the New English Bible has, do not keep thinking how wise you are. You see, we're we're to be transformed by the renewing of our minds, and here Paul speaks of the mindset the humble way of thinking that is to characterize the Christian. So first he says, live in harmony with one another. A a more wooden translation of this would be, think the same toward one another. It's an expression that Paul uses in a number of places elsewhere. Later in this letter, uh, Romans 15, 5, we, we read, may the Lord God who gives endurance and encouragement grant you to think the same among one another according to Christ Jesus. Now, the NIV translates this, may God give you the same attitude of mind toward each other that Christ Jesus had. In Philippians chapter 4, verse 2, Paul pleads with two women, Euodia and Syntyche, to think the same in the Lord. Again, the NIV translates this as, be of the same mind. And then there's that wonderful passage from Philippians chapter 2 that we read earlier. Uh, Chapter 2, verse 2, may my joy complete by being like-minded, thinking the same, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Verse 5, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. In each of those verses, Paul is using the same word as in our passage in Romans 12, verse 16. And in this admonition to live in harmony, Paul is calling us to adopt a common mindset a united frame of mind, a shared view of the world. Now, that doesn't mean we must all think in just the same way or that we must think exactly the same thing about every issue. Not at all, no. Paul is saying that there should be one overall way of thinking that unites us. And that way of thinking should be shaped by the gospel of Christ. Now, we see this gospel theme when Paul says that Euodia and Syntyche should be of the same mind in the Lord. And when Paul prays that God may give us the same attitude of mind toward each other that Christ Jesus had, 
And in Philippians 2, when he says that in our relationships with one another, we must have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. You see, the one mind that we're to share is the mind of Christ. It is his mindset that should unite us. That fundamental way that we think about our lives, our relationships, it, it mustn't come from blockbuster Hollywood movies or the latest Netflix drama series, or best-selling novels. We're not to model our lives after fashion models or star athletes. No, our thinking is to be shaped by this glorious gospel message. The story of the Son of God who became flesh in His love for us. Now, that's exactly where Paul goes in that passage in Philippians 2. He says, make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. And here he describes what that mindset looks like. Who being in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be used for his own advantage. Rather he made himself nothing. By taking the very nature of a servant. Being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death. Even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You see, this is the mindset of Christ Jesus. He had great dignity, great honor, yet he became a servant. He humbled himself in love for us even to the point of dying on a Roman cross. And after that, he was exalted to an even higher place of honor by God. This is the mindset that we are to share together. This is the mindset that is to transform us into the beautiful people, the beautiful church that God wants to put on display for his glory. Now, I think of it this way. In Fixer Upper, Joanna Gaines, she transforms houses By giving them a new organizing framework, a design that reflects her distinctive style. Her style happens to be what they call farmhouse chic, with lots of clawfoot bathtubs, barn doors, and shiplap. Uh, Her design style ties things together into this harmonious whole. Well, for Paul, that overall design style comes from the gospel. This story of Jesus in his humility and his exaltation, this story forms the grand design around which our lives are to be organized and lived out. When the, when the things we value, the decisions we make, the ways we relate to one another are shaped by this gospel mindset, we will flourish. We'll live according to God's design. We will live in harmony with one another and we will display a beauty that brings glory to God. That's one of the reasons that when we got married, Susan and I chose this passage from Philippians 2 
that speaks of this uh, mindset shaped by the gospel. We chose this to be read and preached at our wedding. And we knew that sharing together the mindset of Jesus Christ would be the key to a harmonious and happy marriage, one that would honor God. Now, let me in, let me in on a, another secret. You see, creating this mindset among us in the church, shaping the way that we as a church think about the world, our lives, our relationships according to the gospel of Jesus Christ, that is one of the main functions of my role as a pastor and as a preacher. See, the weekly preaching, as we gather together, is a primary way that our mindset as a church is created. As each week, in one way or another, Jesus Christ and His gospel is set before us in all its truth, in all its goodness, in all its beauty, so that we might be transformed by that good, pleasing, and perfect will of God. As we we set this gospel story in front of us that it, it may shape our thinking rather than the pattern of this world around us. And that's one of the reasons you see why preaching is so important in the life of the church. It, it's, it is forming our common way of thinking as a people. Our imaginations are being shaped by the beauty and by the wisdom of the gospel. For you see, if we share this gospel mindset, we will live, as Paul says, in harmony with one another. Now, I think harmony is a wonderful word to use here. Harmony has the sense of the blending of many voices. For you see, we do not sing the same notes. See, in harmony, there are various musical lines that are all sung at the same time. And they blend beautifully together because we're all singing from the same page of music. With our various voices, we're singing the same song. And that song is a gospel song. It's a song about the amazing grace of God that saved a wretch like me. It's a song about this holy, holy, holy God. A God in three persons, a blessed trinity. It's a song about amazing love, a a song that leads us to ask and wonder, how can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? It's a song about a servant king whose hands that flung stars into place were surrendered to cruel nails. It's a song about a savior who gave his life on an old rugged cross. And when I survey that wondrous cross on which the prince of glory died, my riches gain I count but loss and poor contempt on all my pride. This is the gospel song that we're to sing in harmony. And this gospel song is a song of humble love. And that song, more than any other, will humble us. For this common gospel mindset that we're to share and which brings harmony in our relationships, this mindset is characterized above all by humility. Humility. 
Again, isn't that what Paul says in Philippians chapter 2? In your relationships with one another, have this mindset of Christ Jesus. What was it? Here was Christ Jesus being in very nature God, but he didn't grab hold of that. No, he let go of that. He, he made himself nothing. He took the very nature of a servant. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. You see, humility is at the core of the gospel mindset. It is at the core of gospel living. Let me say that again. Humility is at the core of the gospel mindset. It is at the core of gospel living. And so in our passage here in Romans 12, 16, Paul says, live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Now again, woodenly, this part of this sentence could be translated, do not think high things, presumably about yourself. Don't think of yourself as better than others or of a higher status than others or more important than others instead be willing to associate with people of low position paul is essentially saying love does not seek prominence over others through social standing there's no place for snobbery among the followers of jesus don't be the kind of person that places great stock in social status in prestige in popularity don't fret yourself about, about being a part of the in crowd the inner ring the elite social circle don't long to experience the reflected glory of being seen with glamorous people jesus warned against that kind of thing Jesus says, watch out for those who like to walk around in flowing robes and be greeted with respect in the marketplaces and have the most important seats in the synagogues and the places of honor in the banquets. See, that way of thinking is deadly. It creates social barriers. It divides rather than unites. It's contrary to the mindset that reflects the gospel. For look at Jesus, the very Son of God. Who did he hang out with? Was it with the rich and the famous? Was it with the power brokers, the beautiful people of the upper class? Not at all. Jesus was a friend of the poor and the destitute. He was surrounded by outcasts and social rejects, the pariahs of his day, shameful prostitutes, hated tax collectors. And isn't Jesus simply reflecting the character of God? Psalm 82, 3, God defends the weak and the fatherless. He upholds the cause of the poor and the oppressed. Proverbs three thirty four. he mocks proud mockers but shows favor to the humble and the oppressed. I think it's an attitude that's displayed by Paul the Apostle, that esteemed student of Gamaliel, great leader of the early church. In his New Testament letter to Philemon, we see that Paul was not too proud to befriend a slave named Onesimus, whom he met in a Roman jail. Onesimus became to him like a beloved son. You see, Paul, like Jesus, was no respecter of persons. He didn't, he didn't crave social prestige. All people were alike to him, for he knew how they were seen by the God who made them all in his own image. Paul was much more concerned with how he was seen in the eyes of God than how he was seen in the eyes of men. So you see, there, there can be no social hierarchy in the Christian community. Now, that may exist in the military, or officers aren't to fraternize with the enlisted, or it may exist in the business world where managers are not to befriend uh, workers on the shop floor, but there's no place for that kind of segregation in the church. There are no higher or lower parts of the body of Christ. The mouth is as valuable as the ear or the eye or the hand or the foot. 
And the only hierarchy there should be in the church is a hierarchy of love. You see, as in a family, so in the church, those who should receive the most love are those who most need it. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Uh, get out of your... Uh, get, get out of that desire to be in that social circle, the inner ring. No, no, break down those social barriers, barriers of class, education, wealth. We're one in Christ. And just remember this, in the kingdom of God, everything gets turned upside down, doesn't it? The first shall be last, the last shall be first. So keep that in mind when you think, who is important around you? And Paul has one more admonition for us in this passage, and it's a simple one. He says, do not be conceited. Now again, the word for thinking lies behind this command. As one translates it, put it puts it, do not keep thinking how wise you are. Other versions say, never be wise in your own eyes. Uh, do not claim to be wiser than you are. Now I think uh, the NIV here, do not be conceited, captures the idea well, but these other versions better explain the source of that vice. You see, Paul is describing here the person who has an over-elevated assessment of their own sagacity. In other words, they are those smarty-pants who think they've cornered the market on good sense. The problem, of course, is that people who are wise in their own eyes never think of themselves as conceited. No, I mean, they're, they're not proud. They're just right all the time in a self-assured kind of way. Their opinion is the only one that matters, well, because they simply know what's best. No need to listen to others, consider other viewpoints, other voices. Why bother? They trust in their own wisdom, for they are wise in their own eyes. That's not what love looks like, Paul says. No, th this way of thinking is not compatible with the mindset that comes from the gospel. And in affirming this, Paul is simply drawing on the wisdom of the Proverbs. He's actually citing Proverbs 3, 7 here, which says, quite simply, do not be wise in your own eyes. Also, Proverbs 26, 12. Do you see a person wise in their own eyes? There's more hope for a fool than for them. Being wise in your own eyes is considered foolish and arrogant because it is contrasted in the Bible with trusting in the wisdom of God. The words of Proverbs 3, 7, do not be wise in your own eyes, are preceded by the words of Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, submit to Him, and He will make your path straight. And those words are followed by the words of Proverbs 3, 8. Fear the Lord and shun evil. This will bring health to your body and nourishment to your bones. You see, being wise in your own eyes suggests that your wisdom comes from yourself and not from God. It's not a humble wisdom that knows that it needs outside input, takes advantage of the insight of others, and particularly looks first to the wisdom of God. You see, real wisdom fosters humility, not self-assured arrogance. I think of the words of James. Who is wise and understanding among you? Let them show it by their good life, by deeds done in the humility that comes from wisdom. He says, but if you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast about it. 
I deny the truth. Such wisdom does not come from heaven, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder and every evil practice. But the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure, then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere. Peacemakers who sow in peace reap a harvest of righteousness. You see, there is a humility that comes in seeking wisdom, not in myself, but from God for his wisdom, the wisdom that comes down from heaven is, first of all, pure, peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial, sincere. It's the very opposite of the conceit that Paul is warning against here. You see, this is the wisdom that flows from a mindset that is shaped by the gospel of Jesus. You see, we need to understand that the life that Christ came to reveal to us the life he came to call us to participate in is a life of humility. For humility is an essential component of love. Now, we don't we see this in Jesus' life? John chapter 13. It was just before the Passover festival. Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. And having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the very end. And how does he show that love? He got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water in a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet. Jesus, in all his divine dignity and nobility, Jesus, knowing where he had come from and where he was going, Jesus took the role of a slave, washing the dirty feet of his disciples. And this, of course, was just a prelude to that even greater act of humble love when he willingly went to the cross on our behalf. You see, humility is an essential component of love. For without humility, there can be no love. But with humility, love can't help but be expressed. You see, humility is what allows us to take the focus off ourselves. Humility is what allows us to think of the needs of other people. It is in humility that we consider the viewpoints of other people fairly. It is in humility that we can admit that we have been wrong. And it's only in humility that we can come to our God in faith and seek His mercy and forgiveness and confess our need of His grace. See, only in that kind of humility can we receive the love that God has for us. God opposes the proud, and he gives grace to the humble. Which side of that contrast are you on? Which side of that do you want to be on? The gospel mindset that leads to harmony is characterized by humility. That's why our love must be humble-minded. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. Let's pray. Lord, we confess 
the inclinations of our own heart that are reinforced by the pattern of this world around us. It's one that makes us focus on ourselves, our own needs, our own desires, our own will. It's very powerful. But Lord, help us to see how foolish it is. For you are good and you are gracious. You are wise and you are powerful. And you call us to humble ourselves and respond to you in faith. You call us to to offer our bodies a living sacrifice so that we may discover this good, pleasing, and perfect will of God. So, Lord, we pray that we would be no longer conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of our minds. That we would have this, this mindset, this way of thinking about ourselves, about the world, about relationships, and ultimately about you, that is shaped by this gospel story, the story of your love poured out for us, where you reveal your, your grace and truth as well as your, your righteous judgment in the life, death, and ultimately the resurrection and ascension of Jesus Christ. Lord, may this gospel story come alive in our imagination. May it be the governing reality that shapes our lives. That we may live in harmony. We can discover this, this transforming beauty that you offer us. Why we pray this. In Jesus' name, amen, amen.